Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Will Biden's opener be? So I heard you were hoping for the other guy. The lead starts right now. Face-to-face, President Biden and Putin meet in less than 15 hours. We're learning new details about what will happen inside the room. And then pressure campaign. The newly revealed emails showing how Trump and his allies hounded the Justice Department to investigate outlandish allegations of voter fraud. Plus, a grim new milestone in the COVID pandemic as the CDC raises the threat level of a vicious new variant. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown, in for Jake Tapper. And we begin today with our world lead and the new details revealed about what to expect during President Biden's highly anticipated historic summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Tomorrow, the two leaders will meet face to face at a time when U.S.-Russia relations are at their lowest point since the Cold War. It's still unclear whether Biden and Putin will meet without no takers, but officials say they do expect the summit to last about four or five hours. Biden has been preparing intensely for the talks, according to officials, also holding lengthy sessions with his team, consulting with G7 and NATO allies for their input. And last month, we're told that Biden assembled a group of Russia experts, including former Trump officials, to brief him. Now, with CNN's Phil Mattingly reports, officials are revealing what exactly the two leaders will be discussing. That America's back, and which is why we're here in full force. President Biden capping off a week designed to reinvigorate America's closest alliances, delivering a resolute message. Europe is, uh, is uh, our, our natural partner. And the reason is we're committed to the same democratic norms and institutions, and, our, uh, and they are increasingly under attack. A message repeated directly nearly two dozen conversations with key U.S. allies in the G7, NATO, and today, the EU. One carefully calibrated to be carried into the highest stakes moment of his first foreign trip, his sit-down with Russian President Vladimir Putin. That's how we'll prove that democracy and that our alliance can still prevail against the challenges of our time and deliver for the needs and the needs of our people. Biden arriving in Geneva for that sit-down with relations between the U.S. and Russia at their lowest point since the Cold War. The two leaders set to participate in at least two meetings, a smaller sit-down with Biden, Putin, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov participating, followed by an expanded discussion with five member delegations. The two leaders will not share a meal, officials say, and the talks are expected to last roughly four to five hours. The day will close with individual press conferences by each leader, an intentional decision by U.S. officials in an effort not to elevate the Russian leader. The U.S. agenda is lengthy, and it will be delivered with clear intent, officials say. From firm warnings on cyber attacks, the imprisonment of opposition leaders, and aggression in Ukraine, to areas of potential cooperation like Afghanistan, arms control, and the Iran nuclear deal. I'm going to make clear to President Putin that 
There are areas where we can't cooperate if he chooses. And if he chooses not to cooperate and acts in a way that he has in the past relative to cybersecurity and some other activities, then we will respond. But even those areas of potential cooperation will come with significant skepticism from the U.S. side. I'd verify first and then trust. Even as Biden signals a grudging respect for what Putin, a leader who has confounded U.S. officials for decades, will bring to the room. He's bright. He's tough. And uh, I have found that uh, he is a uh, worthy adversary. And Pamela, one of the most interesting elements, I think, going into tomorrow is despite intensive negotiations between U.S. officials and Russian officials over how this sit down will be structured, two senior administration officials have said they have left some flexibility. They agreed with the Russian team to leave flexibility for the two leaders to decide if they want to take any of these meetings into a different direction, perhaps even a one on one meeting. Whether that happens, well, that will largely be determined by the tone and substance of those first two meetings, but it's something to keep an eye on tomorrow in this high-stakes sit-down, Pamela. All right. Thank you so much, Phil. And let's bring in CNN's Moscow correspondent, Matthew Chance, who is also in Geneva. So, Matthew, today Putin's spokesperson was asked about who would be involved in a possible prisoner swap. What did he say? Well, I mean, look, uh, first of all, they don't want to talk about individual names right now on the eve of the summit. But, I mean, it's well known that the various uh, players that are in play uh, are two uh, individuals uh, who are American citizens. Paul Whelan, uh, former U.S. Marine, is in prison for 16 years on espionage charges uh, in Russia. And Trevor Reed, who was imprisoned last year uh, for nine years after, you know, apparently endangering the life of a Russian policeman. Um, Those are the the, the people, the American citizens that are in Russian jails right now. Uh, It's a very emotional issue. You've seen very emotional appeals uh, being made by the parents and the relatives of those two figures to both Presidents Biden and Putin for them to come to some kind of a deal to try and get them released and returned home. But of course, if that's going to happen, then the Russians will want something in return. And the Russians have got their own list of prisoners, Russian citizens in American jails that that they want uh, returned if there's going to be any kind of prisoner swap. And those two people, the people who are most mentioned by the Russian foreign ministry, by Russian officials, whenever this issue is broached, are Konstantin Yaroshenko, who was convicted of conspiracy to smuggle large quantities of cocaine, um, and Victor Boot, who was one of the world's most notorious arms traffickers, and he's serving 25 years in a U.S. federal uh, penitentiary. The, The problem has always been that U.S. officials say that the, the level of criminality of those Russians is far higher than, than, than the Americans in, in Russian jail. So it's not an equal balance. But, of course, the final decision will rest with the two presidents when, potentially, when they start that process moving forward or advance it in some way, because it's already sort of been in, 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 in motion. And both presidents um, want these summits to be successful, right? Uh, we have talked a lot about what a successful summit looks like for Biden, What does a successful summit look like for Putin? Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, I mean, the Kremlin says, of course, I mean, as the White House does, that there are areas of, you know, where they can cooperate mutually, you know, arms control, climate change, you know, managing regional conflicts 
uh, things like that. And that's, and that's certainly true. You know, they, they have a point. That would be good uh, for you know, global diplomacy if Russia and the United States could work together on some of those issues, like the Iran nuclear deal, for instance. I, I think there's also a sense um, you know, that the Russians want to put the brake a little bit on the runaway train that the US-Russian relationship has become. They don't even have ambassadors in each other's countries. But I, you know, I think that overall, the most important factor from the Kremlin point of view is symbolism. This is Vladimir Putin at the top table diplomatically uh, with the US president. He's got a summit. It's not a meeting on the sidelines of some other kind of venue. This is a one-on-one, you know, face-to-face summit with the US president. That does enormous uh, things for his credibility at home, and he will be using it, I expect, to, the, to its full impact. And that's been some of the criticism against President Biden giving him a platform. Matthew Chance, thank you for that. Let's discuss this a little bit deeper with Gary Kasparov a Russian pro-democracy leader and chairman of the Human Rights Foundation. He's also a former world chess champion. Uh, Gary, you have been a harsh critic of Putin. You just heard Matthew Chance talk about what a successful summit looks like for him. What do you think? Oh, Putin already got what he wanted, a summit. Uh, He might get more, of course, but the main exchange has already happened. President Biden gave the credibility of the United States to a brutal dictator. Let's not forget, you know, Biden called Putin a killer, rightly so. And the president of the United States having a summit with a killer who attacked his country, the United States, on multiple occasions. It's the only a sign of weakness. And it doesn't matter what Biden or the Democrats think about it. It's what Putin and his mafia and their cronies around the world think that matters. And if you care about... Uh, the results. So you just should separate the uh, global effect, negative effect of the very fact of this meeting and some domestic politics. As we know, President Biden was the one that asked for this meeting. The White House has been downplaying expectations. But you have noted that every new U.S. president comes in and thinks that they're going to work something else out with Putin or reset relations. Now, that is not what this White House is saying they're going to do. But why has he confounded so many U.S. presidents over the years? Oh, we should ask, you know, U.S. presidents why they let it happen. But naturally, the uh, Bush 43 dealt with with a newcomer. Um, I still think he made mistakes, but uh, you can hardly criticize Bush for recognizing the threat coming from Putin in 2004, 2005. Then we had Obama, who made, I think, a grave mistake of hoping for um, for a reset. Um, uh, but he... I had hopes with uh, Dmitry Medvedev. We all knew it it was a shadow of of, uh, Putin, but still Obama had some hopes. And of course, the the second Obama's term was was a total disaster. And then we had Trump. But Trump was a different story because we all had reasons to suspect that he was worse, a KGB asset. Uh, At least it looks so. But in this case, uh, you know, everything looked like it was Trump's reputation at stake. Now we have Biden. And Joe Biden was around for forever. He, he remembers Soviet Union. He dealt with KGB in its original form. And uh, now it's a reputation of the United States at stake. And I, when I heard about this prisoner swap, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm terrified because we're talking about an exchange of hostages for criminals. And if Putin gets it out of this meeting, yeah, that's, uh, that definitely sends a message that Vladimir Putin is, as Matthew Chance correctly said, you know, sitting at the top diplomatic table, got what he wanted after 21 years of his dictatorship and after him violating um, every agreement he signed 
and attacking neighboring countries. And again, attacking. He keeps attacking the United States. The recent the attacks happened uh, um, in, 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 within the last couple of months after the uh, summit was already announced. Right. With the cyber ransom attacks, and that is something that we do yes. expect to be brought up in this meetings. But what will come out of it, we still don't know. In this opinion piece you wrote for CNN.com, you had said, Putin's impunity will only grow unless there are rapid repercussions for his criminal acts. What kind of repercussions are you talking about? Uh, naturally, you know, if you're dealing with criminals, if you're dealing with mafia, you have to stop them uh, from uh, being aggressive and attacking your interest. And if, if Biden wants to send a real message to Putin, he would meet with Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, where Putin is invading. He would meet with Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, the real president of Belarus, living in exile. And especially now when Lukashenko had his, uh, uh, hijacked the plane and, 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 and uh, um, uh, had a prisoner, the, the young, young boy has been tortured uh, and, and demonstrated on, on, on Belarusian TV. Or Biden had a chance of meeting with the families of Putin's victims, like family of Alexei Navalny. There are many ways of sending message to Putin that America is back. And America is serious, and it's not just words, but acts. But uh, so far, again, it's 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 all about you know warnings. If Putin does that, you know, oh, we we will act. We have been hearing it for more than a decade, at least. And uh, another warning to Putin, it uh, has has no effect. All right, Gary Kasparov, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on this. And coming up, the attorney general today citing the insurrection as he lays out a new wide-ranging plan to combat domestic terrorism. That's right ahead. Plus, teens tased by police for vaping. We're going to show you the shocking videos raising questions about police use of force. Turning to our world lead, President Biden's big moment on the international stage is fast approaching. His highly anticipated five-hour sit-down with Russian President Vladimir Putin is set for tomorrow. Will it echo the 1985 talks between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, who also met in Geneva, Switzerland, in their face-to-face meeting? Or will it worsen the already fraught U.S.-Russian relations? Let's discuss with Julia Yaffe and our Chris Saliza. Great to see you both. So, Julia... The White House says Biden met with a group of Russian experts earlier this month to prepare for this meeting. It appears that Biden is doing a lot of preparing, doing his homework. But what are the pitfalls he's likely to face? Well, the first pitfall is that unlike Gorbachev, Putin doesn't want to cooperate with the Russians. Gorbachev needed help from the Americans economically. He wanted to open the Soviet Union up to the West. He wanted to integrate his country into the world order. Uh, Putin does not want to do that. He wants to survive and stay at the top as long as he can. And his side, the Russian side, has signaled repeatedly that they will not make any concessions, that they don't really need anything from this meeting. They kind of just, they're making, uh, they're pretending that they basically just agreed to this meeting because uh, Biden asked for it. So this is kind of noblesse oblige. And in fact, they're also, you know, sticking their finger, their thumb in the eye of the U.S. and saying, you know, if Biden tries to talk about human rights, then the Russian side will bring up the January 6th rioters and the alleged violations of their human rights. Taking the false equivalence there. Um, It all raises the question, Chris, Mm -hmm. given the risks 
and the potential pitfalls with this meeting and the fact that the White House is already saying we don't think we're going to have many deliverables, if at all. What is the point of this? Do you think the White House has sold the purpose of this meeting enough? You know, I was listening to Gary Kasparov in the last segment, and I was struck by the fact that he views it as the Russians have already won because there's a there's a meeting at all, which I think is important context. Mm-hmm. I think Joe Biden wanted to come at it from two two things. One, a point of strength. We're asking for this meeting. We want to reset. There are things we can agree on. There are going to things we're not going to agree on, and I'm going to tell you those things we're not going to agree on from mm-hmm. Joe Biden's perspective. I think the other thing is, just like this whole European tour thus far, there's an implicit, not even that implicit, sort of an explicit comparison they are hoping between how Joe Biden looks to the European world community and then how Joe Biden looks in a meeting with Vladimir Putin to how Donald Trump looked in the European community and how Donald Trump looked in a meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin. Obviously, we're not going to have that joint press conference Mm -hmm. like we did in Helsinki in 2018. But that moment, there are a lot of lows of the Trump presidency, but that moment, at least on the world stage, struck me as, you know, he's undermining his own intelligence community uh, while on stage Vladimir Putin saying, well, Vladimir Putin said right. we didn't get involved. I think Biden wants to say, I'm not Trump in a lot of different ways, both with the carrot and the stick, and I'm going to reset. Now, reset, reset we've been right. there a lot of times before. And I, I'm with Julia. I, 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 this, the attempt to make this a Gorbachev-like moment it's not uh, going to happen. Because Putin doesn't want to play ball that way. How much do you think it has to do with being able to sort of shift back into China and look in focusing on that? Because as you well know, the meetings with, with allies have been very focused on China. Yes. The communique was all about China. I mean, how much of it is about, you know, lowering the temperature with Russia so that they can refocus? Them? I think that that's probably some of it. I, I think what Biden wants to get out of this is I told him about the things that I thought were important, you know, human rights and and those sorts of things. We talked about it. I said I took a hard line. We tried to find common ground on, let's say, nuclear arms. And then in some ways put it off the table, which I think is a little bit dangerous as it relates to Russia. But but sort of take it over here and say, OK, now we're going to focus on this thing. We've been talking about Russia for four plus years, mm-hmm. at least in large part because of Donald Trump and their efforts to meddle in the election. I think this is an attempt to say, let's handle it. Let's handle it pretty soon in my administration, six months in, and go and go from there uh, to other things, to your point, Pam, that are, I think, more pressing, in Biden's mind at least. And, Julia, this meeting is slated for five hours at least around that time. Uh, this isn't just a quick pull aside. They're leaving some flexibility and room in case uh, Putin and Trump, Trump, gosh, Biden, uh, want to go and, and have their own meeting. Um, what do you expect will come out of it? Well, I imagine about about four of those hours will be eaten up by Putin's being late. You know, this is one of the stunts he pulls constantly. He loves being late on purpose to meet the British Queen, the Pope, everybody just to show that he can and he doesn't care and he thinks his time is more valuable. Hmm. But, you know, I'm kind of joking. I I do agree with Chris, though, that I think uh, the way the Biden administration set this up, where first it's the G7, meeting, then the NATO uh, summit, and then this uh, long conversation with Putin, it does show this huge departure from the Trump presidency. And it does show what, um, you know, some observers have pointed out that, you know, Putin is trying to project strength, uh, the kind of strength, the bullying strength of an autocrat. But America is showing that it has the strength because it has a ton of allies, which uh, Russia, frankly, does not have. Right. Which was notable that Biden uh, said during the press conference yesterday that the allies he had spoken with there had said that they support this meeting and they support the timing of it. He clearly wants to go in strongly positioned. Thank you so much, Julia Yaffe and Chris Eliza.
Up next, an inside look at the emails that show how Donald Trump and his allies pushed the Justice Department to look into outlandish election theories. International lead with all the scandals surrounding Trump's Justice Department, the DOJ under President Biden is putting its focus on combating domestic terrorism. Attorney General Merrick Garland today announcing the department's new strategy for stopping the enemy inside our borders, citing the insurrection as a glaring example. The resolve and dedication with which the Justice Department has approached the investigation of the January 6th attack reflects the seriousness with which we take this assault on a mainstay of our democratic system, the peaceful transfer of power. Attacks by domestic terrorists are not just attacks on their immediate victims, they are attacks on all of us collectively, aimed at rending the fabric of our democratic society and driving us apart. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now. So what is the DOJ's new strategy here? Evan? Well, they're borrowing a uh, strategy that they use very successfully against international terrorism, which is uh, taking a, a look at how to analyze one of the, uh, we have uh, some of the things that the Justice Department said they're going to do. They're going to analyze and share information, push that out to some of the state and local governments. They're going to look to try to figure out how to, how to stop some of the domestic terrorism recruitment and try to disrupt some of that activity before it gets to the point of January 6th. But truthfully, you know, you know, you remember how we covered the, the ISIS and the rise of al-Qaeda and all that stuff. We know the, the FBI looks at, at social media postings, and they were looking at that before January 6th. The problem was that it still managed to surprise them that what people said they were going to do, they ended up doing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the things that I think they're confronting is how to manage doing, uh, doing these things that they do with international terrorist groups with a completely domestic picture and, and not infringe on people's First Amendment rights. You heard that from Attorney General uh, uh, Mary Garland today because he knows conservatives are particularly concerned that what the FBI and the Justice Department are going to end up doing is criminalizing free speech and, and some of the conservatives that, that are behind some of these ideas. Mm. All right. It's a tricky situation. We'll be following that. Thanks, Evan. And turning to our politics lead now, emails from President Trump's aides paint a much clearer picture of what was happening behind the scenes in the lead up to the January 6th insurrection. The emails proving Trump's aides pressured then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to consider the big lie allegations that the 2020 election was stolen, as CNN's Paula Reid reports. New emails from Justice Department and White House officials revealed just how former President Trump and his allies pressured then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to pursue false claims the 2020 election was stolen. It was a rigged election. Uh, You look at the different states, the election was totally rigged. The emails, released Monday by Democrats on the House Oversight Committee, show how White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows pressured the Justice Department at least five times to investigate conspiracy theories. In one exchange, he wanted Rosen to arrange an FBI meeting with an ally of Rudy Giuliani, who is pushing a conspiracy. As a friend of mine says, I don't believe in conspiracies. But I also don't believe in coincidences. Rosen would not. Emailing his deputy, I flatly refused, said I would not be giving any special treatment to Giuliani or any of his witnesses. The emails also reveal how the president directed other allies to press Rosen to join the legal effort to challenge election results. 
On December 29th, Kurt Olson, a private attorney, emailed the Justice Department a draft of a lawsuit to challenge the election, claiming he had been directed by the president to meet with Rosen to bring a similar action, writing, I have been instructed to report back to the president this afternoon after this meeting. The emails indicate Rosen talked to Mr. Olson and asked him for more information. The new documents also reveal how on December 31st and January 3rd, former President Trump met with Rosen and other top justice officials and pressured them to challenge the election results. On January 1st, Meadows sent him a YouTube clip pushing a theory Italy used satellites to move votes to Biden. Rosen forwarded it to a deputy and called the clip pure insanity. On the same day, Meadows emailed about signature matches in Georgia. Rosen emailed a deputy writing, can you believe this? I'm not going to respond. The pressure campaign ramped up as the president tapped Rosen to replace outgoing Attorney General Bill Barr, who stepped down in December 2020. Barr, one of the president's closest allies, said publicly in December that he did not see evidence of widespread voter fraud. Today, CNN asked Mark Meadows if it was appropriate for him to be pressuring Rosen to investigate false claims of voter fraud. Meadows declined to comment. Now, the Oversight Committee has also asked Meadows to sit for an interview, but he would not say whether he would agree to testify before the committee he once served on. Pam. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Well, a new study now adding to evidence that COVID-19 was circulating in the U.S. earlier than first reported. That story next. Turning to the health lead now, how it started and how it's going. New evidence that COVID-19 arrived in the U.S. in 2019. A National Institutes of Health study says the virus was here weeks earlier than the first reported cases in this country. And today, a vaccine expert is warning unvaccinated Americans are putting themselves and the country at great risk as a new powerful COVID variant spreads. As CNN's Nick Watt reports. Coffee time. The countdown to 8 a.m. Langer's Deli prepping to open its dining room for the first time in more than 15 months. We'll be able to put a smile on all my employees' faces and all of my customers' faces. I've been off since March of 2020. Across California, no more capacity limits or social distancing in restaurants and stores. And most places, no mask required for the vaccinated. This, the most popular state in the nation, was the first to tell its nearly 40 million people to stay home. And that was more than 450 days ago. We need to bend the curve in the state of California. A grim-faced governor then grinning now at Universal Studios. We are here, June 15th, to turn the page and move beyond wearing these masks. And Disneyland once again welcoming visitors from out of state. Over in New York State. This is a momentous day. 70% of adults have now had at least one dose. It means that we can now return to life as we know it. As of lunchtime, New York State COVID restrictions are no more. The virus has now killed more than 600,000 in America. More will die, but how many? We watched the Delta variant ravage India. The CDC just changed it from variant of interest to variant of concern. 
And I'm extremely worried because the Delta variant is so aggressive in terms of transmission. Anyone who's unvaccinated right now is at very, very high risk, especially in the South this summer. Roughly 55% of adults in America are now fully vaccinated, but the rollout is slowing and it's uneven geographically, demographically. If you have more than you know, roughly half of the population vaccinated, it's not as if half the people you know are vaccinated and half aren't. Either just about everybody you know is vaccinated or everybody you know isn't. In these states, as of this morning, more than 60% of those counted by the CDC were fully vaccinated. In these states, under 45. They're going to be uh, really uh, subject to potential outbreaks, and those outbreaks are not going to hopefully um, have quite the wildfire spread as we saw in 2020, but they're still going to impact those communities pretty strongly. And the reason that California can do all this, open up, is because it has done very well getting people vaccinated. But, you know, no one's declaring victory out here just yet. Norm, who runs this, owns this place, still asking people to mask up when they're moving around. The message is very much, yep, this is great, but let's not go nuts just yet. Pamela? All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Well, time is running out to help thousands of Afghans who risked everything to help the U.S. As we learn, some are being hunted down and killed as we speak. That's next. International lead shocking video going viral right now, showing police kicking and tasing black teenagers in Ocean City, Maryland, after the teens allegedly violated a vaping ordinance. And as CNN's Bryn Gingras reports, the video you're about to see is disturbing. A teenager vaping, leading to this chaotic and shocking scene. You see an Ocean City, Maryland police officer kneeing a teenager multiple times in his side. According to police, officers were enforcing the town's smoking ordinance on the boardwalk when 19-year-old Brian Everett Anderson from Pennsylvania allegedly refused to stop vaping and show ID. Police say he then became disorderly. The video recorded by a bystander begins there. When Anderson says he told police he wasn't resisting arrest, he spoke to ABC News this morning. Another teen appears to be tased during the scuffle, while authorities say a third member of the group threw a bike at them. I get a bike thrown at me, so... I grabbed the bike and threw it to the side. The incident escalated to arrests sparked by an infraction that normally carries up to a $500 fine. Ocean City's mayor saying in a statement, it was only after the individuals refused to provide identification that this became an arrestable offense, adding the officer's actions are under investigation. Governor Larry Hogan calling it a disturbing video. We're just anxious to get uh, the initial investigation conducted so we can have all the facts. It's not the only incident in the city being called into question. Another video from last week showing the moment 18-year-old Tyzeer Griffin was tased. Ocean City police say they stopped the teenager for the same smoking violation and used a taser after he became disorderly and allegedly threatened to kill officers. He was not resisting. He was not giving any issues to the police officers. The events combined causing outrage from some of the state's delegation. The state speaker tweeting, vaping on the boardwalk is not a criminal offense. Black and brown children should not be tased while their hands are up. Officers should not kneel on the back of a minor. Vaping should not yield a hogtie. 
Now, the teens arrested on the boardwalk in that burst video faced a number of charges, including resisting arrest, assault and disorderly contact, conduct. They were released without bail being said. Now, as for that other teen, Tazir Griffin, in that second video, his friend who recorded it says he was in no way a threat to police. But you got to remember, Pam, all of these controversial moves by police are coming in a state that really has been ahead on police reform. New laws were passed uh, earlier this year, and they are set to go in effect very soon. Pam? Okay, Bryn, thanks so much for that. And also international lead, we're learning a deadly shooting in Georgia yesterday happened all because of a dispute over a face mask. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation says an employee at the Decatur grocery store, 41-year-old Lakita Willis, was shot and killed by the suspect. The owner of the grocery store saying Willis had simply asked the man to pull up his mask. A reserve deputy working security at the store fired at the suspect who returned fire. Both were injured and taken to local hospitals. Well, thousands, thousands of Afghans who helped the U.S. now need help themselves. The call for action up next. The buried lead now. Time is running out for thousands of Afghans who helped the U.S. military. As America ends its longest war, the translators left behind are begging the Biden administration to cut through the red tape and grant them special visas to come to the U.S. Today, Independent Senator Angus King told reporters the president's hair should be on fire over this situation. But for some, it is already too late, as our Jake Tapper reports. A family in mourning after their worst fears became reality. Farid Ola Taj Ali Khan murdered by the Taliban. His family says he was targeted for one simple reason. He worked for the U.S. government in Afghanistan. CNN has not been able to independently verify the attack, but documents confirm Khan worked with Americans in Afghanistan for nearly two decades. And this isn't an isolated incident. Stars and Stripes, a news site affiliated with the U.S. military, reports that one Afghan man who worked for the U.S. for 12 years was believed to have been killed by the Taliban while waiting for his visa for nearly a decade. Those tragic deaths, and others like them, renewing attention on what many lawmakers, military leaders, and human rights activists have been stressing for some time now. The United States government, the Biden administration, needs to rescue the Afghan men and women who risked everything to help the U.S. effort before it's too late. We need to evacuate these people. Time is running out. Today, these Afghan allies wait in unrelenting fear. They say they're sitting ducks as the Taliban and other militant groups target them to send a message about the penalty for having helped Americans. Some 18,000 have applied for a special visa known as an SIV to come to the United States a program which the U.S. government created more than a decade ago. But layers of red tape and bureaucracy have slowed the process down to the point where many of the would-be recipients have been waiting for years. Khan was one of those sitting ducks. He waited for years before the Taliban reportedly caught up with him. I mean, they're all walking with a target on them right now. And the reports of the attacks are coming in daily at this point. The murders are happening now. Kim Stafiri is the co-founder and executive director of the Association of Wartime Allies, which has helped Afghan allies through the visa application process. Her group is tracking more than 11,000 Afghans who worked for the U.S., all trying to get to America for their own safety. Stafiri says everything got worse after President Biden announced in April 
that U.S. forces would withdraw by September. Since then, the entire dynamic has changed. The applicants are terrified. I wake up to a message pleading for help. We're, we're going to be slaughtered. We're afraid we're going to be killed. Secretary of State Tony Blinken testified that while approving these visas is a priority, he doesn't think the situation will get worse. I wouldn't um, necessarily equate the departure of our forces uh, in July, August, or by early September with some kind of immediate uh, deterioration uh, in the uh, in the situation. But advocates say Blinken must not be seeing what they are seeing. All the on-the-ground reports that we are getting are in direct contrast to that. These people are in danger now. A sentiment echoed on social media by these SIV applicants who say, quote, the situation of Afghanistan is getting worse day by day. Quote, the Taliban killed my brother and I am sure they will kill me as well. And quote, they will kill all. One option pushed by advocates, evacuate these Afghans to safety even while their visas are still being processed. Some using the hashtag, get them to Guam. Guam's governor writing a letter to President Biden saying the U.S. territory is open to being a temporary safe haven for these Afghans. A few weeks ago, administration officials told CNN that the Pentagon was looking at how to evacuate the thousands of Afghans at risk, with the head of U.S. Central Command, General Kenneth McKenzie, publicly announcing he could pull it off. All he needs is the green light. From a Central Command perspective and the perspective of the U.S. military, if directed to do something like that, we could certainly do it. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley saying the U.S. must protect these allies at all costs, according to Defense One, saying, quote, we recognize that a very important task is to ensure that we remain faithful to them and that we do what's necessary to ensure their protection and, if necessary, get them out of the country. But Blinken is not ready to commit. So yes or no, is the administration planning an evacuation of those people? Uh, evacuation is the wrong word. And when I pushed the White House press secretary on if Biden would commit to getting these allies out of Afghanistan before the U.S. withdrawal, this was her answer. You're asking me specifically about expediting the departure of individuals out of Afghanistan. I just don't have more information for you on that. But that doesn't change the fact that these are individuals we want to help. Afghan allies are now left in limbo, hoping they do not meet the same fate many Vietnamese allies did after the 1975 evacuation of Saigon. An evacuation that a young Senator Joe Biden was against at the time, saying, quote, I do not believe the United States has an obligation, moral or otherwise, to evacuate foreign nationals, and that the U.S., quote, has no obligation to evacuate one or 101,000 South Vietnamese, unquote. And now, thousands of Afghan allies and their advocates are praying that Joe Biden has had a change of heart nearly 50 years later. You campaigned on a return to decency. Everything is in your hands, President Biden, and we need you to do the right thing. Jake Tapper, CNN, Washington. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer live from Geneva, Switzerland. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.